Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We are continuing our series called Seated. And last week we looked at the first few verses in Isaiah 6. And then this week I want us to finish up uh, the rest of Isaiah 6. And today I want us to look at the idea of a holiness filled vision. And what do I mean by that? Well, Isaiah, we looked at last week, got a glimpse of the throne room of God. He got a glimpse of God seated upon his throne. Isaiah goes into the temple. We find that it's in the year King Uzziah died, and we talked about that last week. If you missed that, you can check us out at our website or on Apple Podcasts or uh, Facebook, any other place where uh, you get digital content and you can get kind of caught up on what we talked about last week. But the long and short of it is King Uzziah had died. King Uzziah was basically a good king, and now we find this, the nation about to be plunged into turmoil and uncertainty, and Isaiah gets a glimpse of God seated on his majestic throne as he goes to the temple to worship. And so with that, I just want us to back up and start with Isaiah 6, starting with verse 1, and then pick up with uh, verse 5 in just a moment where we'll be today. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the uh, another said, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundation of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And so you start reading through, and you see this glorious vision that Isaiah has of God, and then you get to verse 5, and you see Isaiah's response. And that's what I want us to look at today in the remainder of chapter 6. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. And their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, let's give a little historical context here. Isaiah is prophesying in the year that King Uzziah dies. He is prophesying mainly to what is referred to as the northern kingdom. 
Sometimes you hear the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Well, the kingdom, the whole country had split, and you have the northern kingdom, and that was referred to as Israel. The northern kingdom was called Israel. It was made up of 10 different tribes. 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, of Israel as a whole, occupied the northern kingdom. And then you had the two tribes that occupied the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom had its kingdom's head, had its palace there in Jerusalem. So you had Israel, the northern kingdom. You had Judah, the southern kingdom. Ten tribes to the north, two tribes in the south. The capital there in the northern kingdom was Samaria. The capital in the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. And you have Isaiah, and he is prophesying mostly to the northern kingdom. Now, later on, he does prophesy to the southern kingdom as well. But he's prophesying mainly to the northern kingdom. And he's prophesying one to two years before the Assyrians came and took over and began to take captives from the northern kingdom and take them back to Assyria. So this is the time frame when Isaiah prophesies. And he has this glimpse of glory, and then we find his response starting in verse 5 of chapter 6. Isaiah has one of those moments where everything changes. And I think we can all think back on times in our own lives where we can think about a perspective moment. Moments that come that change our thinking. We, we may have had moments that happened with our family or moments that happened, uh, things that we saw. Maybe it's some incredible natural wonder. Maybe it's the first time you, you looked out from the top of a mountain. Or maybe if you've been to the Grand Canyon and you, you looked out at that. Maybe it's the first time you heard your babies cry. Maybe it's something that took place that is just so personal to you. Maybe it's the first time you ever heard a, an elk bugle or something like that. And you, you just said, wow, that's a major perspective moment. But sometimes those perspective moments don't just change your thinking. Sometimes they're defining moments. They change the rest of your life. I was thinking about that uh, just the other day. And I was thinking about uh, perspective slash defining moment for me when I was a little kid. The first time I saw the Atlantic Ocean. And I remember we were on vacation. We were going down to Florida. And I remember early one morning, we, we were driving south and the sun... Uh, was was coming up there over the Atlantic and we pulled over and we went down to the beach and I remember just standing there and looking out and realizing that the world was a whole lot bigger than my little six-year-old mind had ever uh, begun to believe it was and then shortly thereafter while we were on the beach there were a, a couple of guys out there on the beach that were up to no good and uh, started making trouble in the neighborhood no uh, and um, those of you of a certain age but um but I was, we were out there on the beach and these two guys, one of them had a big hunting knife. And I remember that they looked over and saw my brother had a shirt that said, I'm proud to be from Mississippi. And we, we went and we got back in the car and we were the only ones on the beach except for them. And my mom, my grandmother were in the restroom. My dad, my brother and I were in the vehicle. And these guys were having a little uh, conversation down the beach and pointing up our way. Their car was parked on the other end of the beach and they started making up, uh, making their way up the beach toward our vehicle, knife in hand. And, um, and my dad, I remember he just very coolly reached over and pulled out his revolver and just very uh, defiantly, but very clearly laid it up on the dash. And I remember watching those two guys stop and stare. 
And then I remember my mom and my grandmother got in the vehicle and, and we drove off. And I remember that that was the day that I realized the world was a lot bigger than I could have ever imagined it being, but also the world was a lot more dangerous than I ever imagined it being. And Isaiah has one of those defining moments where he realizes that God is far grander than maybe he's ever imagined, but there is a holy terror that comes with seeing God in his splendor. And so when we have one of those defining moments with God, when we realize how majestic he is, but we also have that element of fear recognizing that he's God and we're not, that he's in control and we're not, then that changes some things. And so when Isaiah has this, his vision that is filled with this holiness, he responds in a certain way and we can learn some things about how we should respond or what our response should be from looking at Isaiah's response. And so picking up with verse 5 again, when we see God for who he is, that means when his holiness becomes a reality to us, one thing that we find is that we will know the weight of our sin and our need for cleansing. We'll know the weight of our sin and our need for cleansing. Look at what Isaiah says whenever he sees the first words out of his mouth when he sees this vision of holiness. I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah gets a glimpse of the holiness of God, and immediately his first response is, woe is me. He is holy, I am not. He recognizes God for who he is, and he recognizes the weight of his own sin. We find the same thing happening in the book of Job. Job 42, verse 5. I have heard of you, Job says, by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When God shows up and starts to answer, Job says, oh, wait a minute, time out. I've heard about you, but now that I see you, I repent. That holiness of God, the presence of the holiness of God strikes to the very core of Job, to the very core of Isaiah, and it reveals their sinfulness. You find in Luke chapter 5, there is a miraculous catch of fish that takes place. And when Peter sees this miracle in verse 8, it says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, or Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter recognizes he's in the presence of the Holy One. And he said, I'm a sinful person. Get away from me. Depart from me. Lord, uh, Lord, I, I'm, no, I'm not worthy. You find that Isaiah sees this and recognizes this. Notice, though, his indication of how he knows, or at least the manifestation of how he knows he's a sinful person. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Well, isn't that weird? You would think he would say, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean deeds. I dwell in the midst of people, a midst of a people with unclean thoughts. But he says, no, unclean lips. Why? Because Isaiah understands that what comes out of the mouth is, a, is an indication of the condition of the heart. This is what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So Isaiah is saying that the condition or the, the, the condition of his heart, it's going to be indicated by the way that he speaks. And the first thing that he speaks here is, woe is me, oh God. 
I'm undone in some translations. I'm lost. I am undone. And you find that this is repeated later in Isaiah, Isaiah 29, verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. God is saying that this is a direct connection between what is coming out of their mouths and the condition of their heart. And Isaiah says, I've seen the holiness of God. And when we get a glimpse of the holiness of God, when we get a glimpse of the majesty of God, our first response is, we are undone. Because we recognize that we are not God. Now, I know I've talked to people before and they've said, oh, I get a glimpse of God and I just rejoice and I get so excited and I get so... I understand, but that comes usually after, after we repent and we get right with him. Because when we see God for who he is, we recognize very clearly that we are not God. It's as though, as, as some people do, uh, when you go to certain um, jewelry stores and things like that, and you'll look, and many times the boxes that, that the, uh, the ring or the necklace is in, it's dark colored. It's a very dark color. Sometimes it's like black velvet. And the reason is, there is this contrast between that gemstone and its backdrop. And in the same way, when we see ourselves as sinful people, when we see ourselves as who we really are, we see God's glory shine all the more brilliantly because there is this incredible contrast that goes on between who God is and who we are without him. And so the first thing that we find is when we see God for who he is, we know the weight of our sin and our need for cleansing. Do you see the need for your cleansing? When you come before God, do you recognize that you need cleansing? Do you see the need uh, that you have for repentance? And that's exactly what Isaiah cries out for. That brings us to our next point. From there, we go to the next point. When we see God for who he is, we will humble ourselves and serve God willingly. We will humble ourselves and serve God willingly. Now, notice what happens if you back up to that former passage we just looked at. One of the seraphim takes a hot coal, flies down to Isaiah, and touches the coal to his lips and says, your sin is cleansed. You're purged. So now God has equipped you to do what he's called you to do. Because now that you've repented and now that you've been cleansed, now your lips that were unclean are now going to be used as instruments to serve God. Then I, verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Wow, what just happened? That's an incredible change from verse 5. When I said, Woe is me, I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips. And now after the cleansing we have in verse 8, who shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me, I'll go, I'll do it, I'll go. Because what preceded that humbleness and that willingness to serve was the cleansing that took place. So after the cleansing, there comes this willingness to serve God. 
Isaiah has gone from shrinking back in terror to stepping forward willingly and saying, God, I'm your guy. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Why? Because he got a glimpse of who God is. And when we get a glimpse of who God is as the king of the universe seated on his throne, we will be more than willing to do anything that he calls us to do. Why? Because he's the king. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And notice what God tells him to do. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their, eye, their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Wait a minute. Isaiah has just been given the mission and the ministry of going to harden a group of people. That's what God just told him. Isaiah's like, here I am, who's going to go? I'll go. And God says, great, you go and you tell the people my message and it is going to harden them. They are not going to listen and they are not going to hear and they're not going to obey, but go do that. Oh, wait a minute, time out. Wrong Isaiah. Really? That's what you want me to do? That's what you want me to do, God? But notice Isaiah is humbling himself and he's willing to serve God in any way that God has called him to be or anything God has called him to do. And he's not worried about what everybody's thinking. He's not worried about what, uh, well, how are they going to respond whenever I go and I tell them this? Well, God's already told them how they're going to respond. No, we're not going to listen. And God says, go tell them anyway. Go tell them anyway. You find very much the same idea expressed by Paul in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul's like, am I trying to get people's approval by what I'm preaching? Because if that were the case, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Because Christ was rejected by these people. And Paul says, I'm going to go and I'm, I'm preaching the gospel. And I'm preaching this message. And I'm not worried about the approval of man. I'm worried about pleasing God alone. This is why in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 23, Paul can write this. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Paul says, serve God. Isaiah is saying, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to do what God's called me to do. I'm going to, here I am, send me. Even though this message was to harden the hearts of the hearers. Now, I know that's hard for us to understand. Why would God do that? Why would God want to harden those people's hearts? Why would he do that? It's like in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. You find a number of times it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then the same number of times it says God hardened his heart. Well, Pharaoh made a choice. I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to let your people go. I'm not going to do this, Moses. I'm not. I'm not. And yet at the same time, God judicially hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Because God gets all the glory. You know, God doesn't leave us where we are. He never leaves us where we are. Whenever we're following him and we're, we're, we're pursuing him, we love him, we're following Christ, God does not allow us to stay where we are. We develop more and more into the likeness of Christ. But do you know the opposite is also true? For a person who says, I reject God, I'm not going to have anything to do with God. 
Do you know what happens? That person doesn't just stop there. That person grows worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. It's, it's like whenever I was a, a children's pastor up at my former church for, for a season, I was lots of different pastors, <laughs> lots of different roles, many hats. But for my season that I served as children's pastor, uh, we were very careful whenever children would come forward and they would say, I want to be baptized or I want to know Christ. And we would ask them, why? And sometimes they would say, well, I just want him in my heart. Well, why? Well, I just think that'd be good. Uh, we had one kid that says, I just want to get in that big swimming pool uh, like my buddy did. I was like, oh, well, first of all, it's not a big swimming pool. And secondly, you need to understand what it means, right? And so we were having those talks. And one of the things that we always made sure was that the child understood what sin was and that the child was a sinner in need of a savior. Because otherwise, if they're just saying, I just need Jesus, well, why? Well, I just need him. Why? If they don't understand their con the concept of sin. So we wanted to make sure about that. But we had younger kids coming to know Christ at an early age. And I remember I had, we had an adult that came, an older adult came uh, to me, and a good friend of mine. And he looked at me and he said, I don't agree with us baptizing these six, seven, eight-year-old kids. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, I don't think they're old enough to understand. And I said, if they're old enough to understand sin, and they're old enough to understand the Savior, then they're old enough for salvation. Absolutely. He said, well, I think we should wait until they get a lot older, and then they can understand. And my statement to him was, they don't get older and smarter, they get older and harder. And that's exactly what happens. If they understand the concept of sin and they understand the concept of a Savior, they're old enough to understand. Do they understand all the details? No. This is why I talked to one gentleman one time many years ago. And he looked at me and he said, Pastor, it's okay that you preach what you preach. And I believe that Jesus would save me from my sins. But here's my plan. I'm going to live my life out. I have never followed Christ. Everything's been pretty good. So I'm going to live and enjoy all the pleasures that the world has to offer. And then on my deathbed, I'm going to give my heart to Jesus and I'll, I'll go into heaven. And I said, you're wagering that A, your heart's going to be soft enough to hear his calling. B, that you're even going to have a deathbed. Yeah, I mean, you may be gone in an instant. You may not have time to contemplate this. You may, I said, yeah, and, by, and by the way, every time you say no, it's just like a layer of hardness. It gets put over your heart. And so here we have in the book of Isaiah, God saying, Isaiah, I'm calling you to go to this rebellious people and you're going to increase their judgment even. They're, God's not just going to let them stay where they are. And we find that this goes over into the New Testament. Chapter uh, 12 of the book of John, verse 40. Jesus says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Notice what he says in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Jesus is talking to these leaders, these religious leaders, and he's saying, this is exactly the same thing that Isaiah said. It's still going on with you people. And now I know we look at this and we say, man, Isaiah, that's a, that's a hard task. That is your ministry? Being sent to preach so that people would be hardened? Listen, you don't, you don't assign worth to the call because of the magnitude of the task. The worth of the call is assigned to the majesty of the one who called you to the task. That's what it's related to. Who called you to serve in whatever way he's called you? God. 
And so with God as the one, the majesty of God, the glory of God, the power of God, the sovereignty of God, who calls us to do these things, then we say, okay, God, I'll do whatever you call me to do. I'll, do, I'll go wherever you send me to go. And notice this, before we move on to the next point, they are getting a revelation of God through Isaiah. A revelation of God will never leave you unchanged. Never. When, when you see God, it's either going to break you or it's going to harden you. It's either going to dazzle you or it's going to blind you. But it won't leave you unchanged. There's an old quote that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And that's exactly what happens whenever we get a glimpse of God. For some people, it draws them all the closer to God. For some people, they willingly say, yes, oh God. And for others, they say, I don't want anything to do with that. And it hardens them even more to God. And you find, you can read through, oh, we don't have time to read it all right now, but you can read through Isaiah uh, chapter 30, verses 8 through 11, and, and it's the people's response when they say, don't prophesy to us. We don't want to hear any more from this Holy One of Israel. So you find that we will humble ourselves and serve God willingly. Uh, we will know the weight of our sin, then we humble ourselves and serve God willingly. And finally, we will endure difficulty and stand upon God's promised hope. We'll endure difficulty and stand upon God's promise. So when we get a glimpse of who God is in his glory, in his majesty, we will endure all manner of difficulty because we're looking toward the hope. Notice what Isaiah says when God says, this is your ministry. Then I said, how long, O Lord? Oh, wait a minute, Lord. Now, I'm willing to do it, but how long is this going to be my ministry? How long am I supposed to tell these people to repent and they say no? How long am I supposed to give them your word and they say uh-uh? How, 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 how long is that going to go on? Well, Isaiah doesn't get a number here, but we know from history and looking at all the text, it's about 20 years. For about 20 years, Isaiah prophesies these things. And you find that one of the things that happens in these 20 years are probably the thing that you'll, you'll find throughout Isaiah that you, if, when you look carefully, whenever Isaiah tells the people, listen, you need to get ready and you need to depend completely upon God. They said, no, they knew that Assyria would be coming. So they started making alliances with all these nations around them. Hey, don't you want to help us fight Assyria? Hey, why, we're going to depend upon you to be, you, you got our back. Hey, how about you? Will you, will you watch our six? Because because Assyria is coming, we, we need some help. And Isaiah kept saying over and over again, God says, depend upon him. They didn't listen. They depended upon all of these earthly alliances in order to secure security or to secure victory. You find that the nation of Judah, the kingdom of Judah down south, they even started trying to make alliances with Egypt. Egypt. That, that they were not supposed to have anything to do with. They were making alliances with Egypt, trying to get Egypt to watch their back and to fight with them against the Assyrians. Over and over and over again, you find they're saying, no, we don't want to listen to God. We don't want to fling ourselves upon God. We don't want to depend upon God. We want to depend upon these other nations. And no one was exempt from this destruction that was coming. God tells him, how long, O oh Lord, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes the people far away, he says. 
and no one was exempt. You find in Isaiah 24, starting with verse 1, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. He's saying no one's exempt. And the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. Isaiah says, it doesn't matter where you are, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, rich, poor, Man, woman, doesn't matter. God is saying he's going to bring this upon them. And there's this difficulty, and Isaiah says, I'm just going to stand upon the hope. I'm going to rely upon the hope. That's where we need to be. That, hey, if 2020 has taught us nothing else, it should have taught us that there is only one upon whom we can truly rely, and that is the Lord God that we serve. Not government, not programs, not this, not that. The Lord God, the King of the universe. Because when we, we see a clear vision of God, we will develop what I like to call holy tenacity. I mean, you ever see somebody who's really tenacious? Like a bulldog grabbing hold of something and hanging on. They're tenacious. They have tenacity. Well, whenever we get a clear vision of who God is, it should create in us a holy tenacity. We can have earthly endurance with a heavenly hope. That's the idea of holy tenacity. And so you have that Isaiah is going to prophesy for those 20 plus years because he's got holy tenacity. Why? Because he has seen God for who he is. And so he's able to practice earthly endurance because he's got a heavenly hope. And that heavenly hope is bound up in the one who is seated up on the throne. And you find that, that God does promise, though, that there's going to be a remnant. Not everybody's going to be totally destroyed. There will be a remnant. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 3. He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. So there's going to be a segment. Isaiah 10, 22. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. Now wait a minute. What? God says, even though you're going to get a little, the people are vast, only a remnant are going to return from this exile. And then he says, destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. How do those two things go together? Destruction is decreed. I have said it shall be so, but it's overflowing with righteousness. Do you realize that sometimes self-destruction is the most merciful thing that God can do to a people? Now, I know we say, how is that merciful? It's a hard mercy. But God removes anything and everything, any alliance, any security, anything that is connected to anyone or anything other than himself. And he lets all those props be knocked out. He tears out every bit of that old foundation. Anything and everything that's not God, he allows for that to occur. And then he can build from there when the only thing that's remaining is trusting and hoping in him. That's what he's talking about here. It's a great act of, it's a great act of God's mercy. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. Yes, there's destruction that is coming upon this people. 
But at the same time, God says, oh, but it's overflowing with righteousness. I have an end in mind. It's to purge, it's to prune, but it's overflowing with righteousness. And God's mercy, that's what he does. He dries up our dependence upon all sorts of lesser things. Hey, if we had time to go around this room and the freedom to do so, we could go around and we could all talk about wells in our own lives that God has dried up. Things that we ran to for our own satisfaction that God in his mercy, harsh mercy sometimes, dried up. You see, the danger of looking to the world to meet our deepest thirst is that the world requires us to always be digging in those wells. And the more you dig, the deeper in that hole you get. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm fountains of living water. I give you fountains of living water. You come to me. You come to me. You're thirsty. You come to me. I'll quench your spiritual thirst. But the world says, oh, yeah, oh, we'll quench your thirst too. You just got to dig a little deeper. Dig a little deeper for us. Dig a little deeper. And you run out of water in that well, just go dig a new well. Dig a little deeper. Just keep digging till you dug yourself so deep into that hole. Sometimes that self-destruction, sometimes that harshest, most difficult time is an act of God's mercy to drive us away from anything and everything that's not him. Well, what do we find hopeful in this passage? Well, it comes right down to verse 13. And this is where we're going to set this down. Though a tenth remain in it, that is in the land, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. <laughs> it's like God says, I'm going to be relentless about this. So God says those group of people are going to be taken from the land by force. There's going to be a group that remain. There's going to be a small group that return. And even when there's that return and those that remain, I'm not done. Because just like you cut down a tree, cutting down the tree, that's like the Assyrians coming and then later the Babylonians taking people away. And that stump's going to remain. He said, but I'm going to burn the stump. I'm going to burn the stump and burn out anything that's left in the stump. God's cleansing, God's purging, God's, God's pruning is complete. And he goes through this people, and this is what he does. And Isaiah is saying, i got to prophesy to these people. i got to say these things. But he's enduring this difficult season because he's focused upon who is on the throne, and he's focused on God's promised hope. This is what we find in Job chapter 14 verse 7. It connects back to the last line of Isaiah 6, 13. The holy seed is its stump. Job 14, 7. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again and that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, 13. The holy seed is its stump. God says, even though, we cut, even though the enemy comes, going to cut down the tree, and even though I'm going to burn the stump that's left, the holy seed is the stump. There's something left in that remnant. There's a little part of it that is going to grow back into my people. Many years ago, my grandmother had a plum tree out in her front yard. I don't know what the plum tree ever did, to elicit such hatred from my grandmother, but she would, the only thing, we hated it because uh, the little suckers that would grow up from the stump, she used to cut those and use them as switches, so we were glad to see it go. And she decided one day that she was tired of this plum tree, and so she went out with her saw and she cut that plum tree down. Well, 
Um, years later, she, she passed away and they had moved to a different house. And a few years after that, I was driving down a little country road and there was that old house place where we had spent so much of our childhood. And I just pulled over and I looked. Do you know what was in that front yard? A big old plum tree. It had grown back from that same root where she had cut it down. Now it was bigger than it ever was. And I couldn't help but think about that. That was it. I mean, cut down to the root, mowed over, forgotten, left, un, left buried in the ground, and then given enough time and given enough water and given enough sunshine, that thing sent forth shoots and those shoots grew into trees. And now there was this massive plum tree growing out in that in that yard. That's the same thing that God was saying that he was doing with his people. Even though that stump is cut down, burnt up, withered, seems to be dead, God still has a plan. And he is going to send his reign in his time and bring forth his people after they've been pruned, disciplined, burnt up, carried off, carted off, and then brought back. God was still in the midst of it. So I don't know where you are individually. I know where we look at ourselves as a nation and we say, wow, we've been through some hard stuff. Can I just tell you something? Get a glimpse of who is on the throne. And when you get a glimpse of who is on the throne, you will be able to operate just as Isaiah did with that holy tenacity, having that earthly endurance because you understand your heavenly hope. And if you are here today and you say, you know, I don't have that heavenly hope. Can I tell you? Don't, don't don't continue to say no. Say yes to him. Every time you say no, every time you say no, get a little harder, a little harder, a little harder, a little harder. Call upon him today. Today's the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't wait. Respond to Christ today. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks for your glorious holiness. And we give you thanks that no matter what we go through, no matter what the rest of 2020 may bring, no matter what 2021 may bring, Father, you are still seated on your throne. And Father, we don't have to fear. We don't have to fret. We don't have to scheme. We don't have to make alliances with anybody else to try to extricate ourselves from this situation. Father, you are in control. You are the king of all. You're the king of the universe. And so, Father, I pray that you would fill our vision with the reality of you being on your throne and everything else will fall into place. And so, Father, I pray that if there's anybody here or anybody listening, or anybody watching either now or even later who would say, I don't have that heavenly hope. Father, I pray today would be the day they would say yes to Christ. They would say an eternal yes to following Christ. They wouldn't continue to have their hearts hardened. They would turn. They would repent. And then after that repentance, they would serve you willingly. Father, we give you thanks that Christ came in our place and he died a death that we deserved so that we could receive eternal life that we didn't deserve. That's the essence of grace. And Father, if we come to him, surrendered, asking for forgiveness. Like Isaiah saying, woe is me. I'm undone. Asking for that forgiveness that we understand that you are faithful to forgive us. 
And through Christ, we can have that forgiveness and that eternal life. I pray today would be the day that many would say yes to you. And Father, I pray for those of us who are already followers of Christ and maybe going through times of difficulty with this season or with maybe other things that, that are just going on in our lives. Father, I pray that you would have us to get a clear glimpse of who you are and then live with that holy tenacity, that earthly endurance because we have a heavenly hope. And may you be glorified in our lives. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.